This is Invest Talk. Independent thinking, shared success. Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Monday, October 9th, 2023 edition. I'm Justin Klein, and for the first time on a Monday, I am joined by Luke Guerrero. Welcome back, Luke. Thanks for having me, Justin. It's a nice Monday surprise for me. Yes, yes, uh, and for all of us. And the weekend was quite the surprise for the world. And we saw ramped up tensions between Israel and Hamas and a war announced. And uh, now we have our second war in the European region. And this is an environment that we've been talking about for a long time where geopolitical tensions are ramping up and that creates more volatility for markets, uh, for asset classes, and especially for oil and all types of raw materials that are dependent on the Middle East. And so, you know, this is something that uh, when I say a new environment we're operating in, you have to throw out the old guard. We haven't had a war. When was the last time Israel and Hamas were at war? What was was it the 70s? I'm not sure the last time that there was an organized conflict versus the lobbing of missiles that typically happens, but it's been some time. Yes, exactly. And uh, obviously, this throws Iran into it and Saudi Arabia and creates a, an environment that kind of harkens back to the 70s. Where there's a lot of geopolitical instability within the Middle East. And of course, we're going to talk about all of this today and give you some unbiased perspective developed with over 20 years of investment experience. We're going to talk about the market performance overall. We're going to run down some show topics right after we answer our first caller question now. Hi, this is Dan from Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. I'm wondering what you guys are thinking about the old Apache, it's an oil company. It's now called APA. Thank you very much. Love your show. All right, looking at Apache, at Apache this is an oil and gas name, and it's an EMP company. Been around for a long time. They produce crude oil, natural gas liquids, and natural natural gas around the world. About a $12 billion market cap. And up nicely today, as you would expect, on the back of what's happening in the Middle East. More tension in the Middle East. And about 4.15% today, based in Houston. And this is a name that got into trouble uh, due to some debt back in the day, but has kind of healed its balance sheet and its business is strong. Luke, what do you think of this compared to some of the other EMP options out there? Yeah, I'm seeing some increasing margins in terms of its return on equity. The gross margin has been up over the past five years, which is fantastic. Um, However, you know, I'd have to dig into it a little bit more because it looks like their average price to book tends to be around 10. It's sitting at 16 now. I'm curious if they on their balance sheet classify their assets in a way that makes it look like so much higher than the industry average. But generally speaking, I would expect, uh, as we saw today, that the tensions in the Middle East and the uncertainty about future oil supply is probably going to drag all of these names upward. I don't necessarily know if this is the best one to go with. I would have to dig in a little bit more. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at the charts, and really since mid-2022, this has been in a downtrend compared to, I just look at the XLE, which is you know the broad energy ETF, and it continues to underperform. So while I think Apache is fine, it's, it's a fine company, it has good cash flows, uh, solid balance sheets, good assets, it's fairly large, it's repurchasing about 40 million shares, uh, of its stock, and that's about ten percent of its float, a little over that. So, oh, I like that the I like the company overall. I just think you have better options out there in the oil and gas space. But thanks for the call. I know a lot of ground to cover in the next forty-five minutes, and time permitting, we're going to get to everything that we have on the docket, and that would be number one, our focus point, which is in, is about the bond market route and how bond prices over the past couple of years have, depending on what part of the bond market you're looking at, they've performed a lot like equities have at a certain certain points in time. And so we're going to compare that and talk about the confounding influences that are pushing rates higher. Also, we want to touch on the dollar and de-dollarization is a big term that people are throwing out there. And the question is how real is the trend towards diversifying away from the dollar? Well, hint, it's a little bit of both. A little bit of hype, a little bit of truth. We're going to look at that. Also, subscription services and the tendency for the average person to keep their prescriptions, subscriptions going for an extended period of time, a lot longer than they actually use those subscriptions. So we're going to look at that and maybe... Uh, that will play into the businesses that deploy those models, as well as just from a personal finance perspective, how to think about your subscriptions that you do subscribe to. And then lastly, some large companies are going bankrupt. And we're going to touch on a few of them and go over their impact on the overall economy and the jobs market. We also have some voice bank questions. One is on traditional versus Roth IRAs, and the KBWP, which is the Invesco Property and Casualty Insurance ETF. We have some iTunes review questions to get to and our perspective for this Monday, and it's on the history of labor strikes here in the U.S. in light of the UAW strikes recently and Kaiser Permanente here in California, and many are that are going on throughout the country. So let's talk about the market performance today. Luke, we had a nice rally in most equities today on the fact uh, the bond market was closed. So yields fell uh, in the futures market. They didn't actually fall because there's no there's no trading in the, in the bond market. But that certainly helped asset prices more broadly. But definitely the value side of the market, uh, commodities, anything hard assets that are going to benefit from more geopolitical tension. Yeah, we're looking at something that does not happen often this year and specifically in the past couple of months and that is small caps outperformed the s p so s p 500 was down five basis points so we call that flat while the russell 2000 was up 12 basis points just over flat that's a positive sign as you typically see those names are most affected in times when you have credit crunches um, Which, what data are you looking at i'm looking at sp was up 27 points about half a percent Oh, this should. This is a little lagged. So apologies on your, that. Your 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 data is looking lagged. Over my there. data is looking laggy. That's my sole yeah. job is to be the data guy, and here we are. Hey, you're the data guy. 
Exactly. But generally it's, speaking, I think you're right. A lot of the geopolitical tensions had had an effect on markets. One other thing that had an effect is that the Dallas Fed's Logan said that if conditions remain tight, it may not be necessary to continue to raise rates, which is a positive sign that equities are going to like as well. Yes, and that was the most under the radar uh, data point or news story today, which for was for obvious reasons. Yes, yeah, for obvious reasons. Uh, but that was certainly a had an impact on the markets and the rally kind of in the afternoon. You were right though in the fact that small caps did outperform large caps today, and I think a big part of that was uh, the uh, the the rhetoric from the Fed, as well as the fact that if you have geopolitical tensions abroad, that tends to hurt more of your larger cap names, your 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 multinationals, et cetera. Whereas small caps, they tend to be more domestically focused. So that that's a that's a big reason why. And then uh, a lot of the oil names are smaller. Um, yes, you have Exxon's and Chevron's of the world, but a lot of oil names are more in the small and mid cap space as well. So uh, that's something to uh, consider. And just mining in general, uh, gold gold miners were up uh, pretty nicely today on gold having a big rebound. Gold is a typical safe haven place to put money in times of geopolitical uncertainty. All right, now as we go to a break, let me remind you to check our new Invest Talk Classroom series. It is streaming for free on our YouTube channel. And episode 10 is up and it's titled Index Construction. In today's world with so many people indexing auto indexing through their 401k etc etc it's it's vital to understand how these indices are constructed and some are market cap weighted some are price weighted but it's certainly important to understand your exposure through certain equities certain parts of the market and that'll help provide insight into the performance over certain periods of times the risks that might be involved as well as the opportunities. So learn more about the index construction and search invest.classroom on YouTube. And now my phone lines are open waiting for your questions at 888-99-CHART. When listener questions are played on the Invest Talk podcast, how do you guys determine a value stock? The caller voices are amplified many thousands of times. Just wanted to get your opinion on JP Morgan and BAC. How do you see this uh, looking forward? I'm 25 years old and have a question about retirement funds. And the unbiased answers from Justin Klein. That's why it's trading so cheap because there's a lot of regulatory risk. And Steve Peasley. I, I kind of like it here. If I was going to buy Tyson food, this is where I'd buy it. Benefit the entire Invest Talk community. Thank you for what you guys do. That's why 24-7, rain or shine, no matter how simple or how complex, your questions make a difference. Symbol BKE, what's your outlook? And Invest Talk is made better by the power of you. So don't forget to call 888-99-CHART. You've got finance and investment questions, and Justin Klein and Steve Peasley are ready with their unbiased answers. Don't forget to call Invest Talk 888-99-CHART. All right, now our focus point looks into the story behind this question. What should investors do amid the route in the stock and bond market? Now, stocks and government bond prices have tumbled as of late because of the Fed rate hikes. And the routes have been pretty historic, if we're being straight. Uh, 
Treasury bonds with maturity of 10 years or more had notched 46% since March of 2020. 30-year bonds had plunged 53%. And that's pretty in line with how equities slumped in the dot-com bubble. They were down 49% peak to trough. And in 08, they're down 57% peak to trough. So what this shows you is convexity is a big issue. When you have low yielding debt and and yields go up, bond values drop precipitously. And everyone thinks of the high, high bond yields back in the late 70s, early 80s. And if you look comparatively, the losses on the underlying bonds are twice as big as they were back then because bonds were bonds were going from a relatively high level to an even higher level. This is going from a very low level of rates to kind of middling level of rates, rates back to kind of long-term averages at this point. And, you know, the big question here is what are the factors driving this and uh, what does it tell you about how to select different asset classes for your portfolio, Luke? I think overall, one of the things that it tells us is maybe there has been over the past year or so some confusion in the bond and equity markets that allowed them to diverge. Um, I think people tend to believe that bond markets tend to be really, really smart, but it seemed to take them a while to realize that rates were going to be higher for longer, even Mm -hmm. though the narrative from the Fed for some time has been rates are going to be higher for longer. So when that's the case, you tend to have the drag down performance in bonds at the same time that equity markets are also now pricing in the fact that bonds aren't doing well. Um, so yeah. that, that kind of has seems to be one of the big drivers of what's going on right now. Yeah. And I, I've seen the, how the market is pricing in long-term inflation and they continue to price in maybe higher inflation than we saw kind of pre pandemic, you know, yeah. kind of, uh, which was, kind of in that one one to two percent range and it's priced getting closer to two and a half but i still think that's low if you look in the history of inflation you go back to eras of large government deficits and uh large government spending inflation tends to be much higher four or five percent etc okay so uh after the break we're going to get into maybe some of the other drivers for this because these type of moves don't just happen because of the Fed wanting to raise rates. Now, that's part of it, but there are other factors where the market is starting to kind of wake up to this new reality of multiple data points hitting the the bond market all at once and creating this massive sell-off in anything that's a long-duration asset. All right, moving into a quick break. The InvestTalk phone lines are open and ready for you at 888-99-CHART. Everybody wants a secure financial future, but getting there takes strategy and discipline. And along the way, you're sure to have finance and investment questions. Justin Klein is here and ready to take your calls live. Invest Talk, 888-99-CHART. All right, now before the break, we were talking about the catalyst for the bond market sell-off the historic bond market sell-off. Now, Luke, you talked a bit about the bond markets maybe being wrong. Everyone says, oh, bond market's usually right. Well, just because they're usually right doesn't mean they're always right. 
And that's that's one factor, just being off on, I think, the trajectory of inflation and the economy as a whole. Now, government debt is certainly one as well. And that is the massive amount of bond issuance in the back half of this year, or the second half of this year. Uh, I think they announced in July that they'd be issuing, Treasury be issuing a trillion dollars in new debt. And that's that's certainly a problem. And it's not just the the amount of debt, but the types of debt that they're selling. So earlier in the year, most of the issuance was in the very short end, selling bills, so one year or less. And a lot of these new issuance uh, over the past few months have been longer date issues, five years, three years, 10 years, et cetera. And so that's certainly a factor. A factor. Uh, Luke, can you think of any others that might have played into this, this route? Yeah, you know, I think it's really just the main point that I have to make is not that there's any one factor that's doing this. I think that this is a time where there's some unprecedented activity happening all at the same time. You're coming out of the pandemic, you have deficits that are running larger than they ever have. You have unprecedented government spending, you have supply chain crises happening because of uh, global conflict. And it, it, it makes sense that markets don't quite know how to handle all of this complexity. Yeah, it's 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 an increasingly complex uh, uh, geopolitical environment, domestically and abroad, and you know the economic strength that we've seen as of late is also something that's confounding most investors, most people, saying, "Oh, interest rates are, are very high, uh, the cost to buy a home is very uh, is is very high, and affordability is very low." And a lot of people look at the economy through that lens as opposed to the components of GDP, the components of the economy as a whole. And so uh, that new environment makes it very difficult for uh, the market to really price in what reality is. Um, And that goes, I think, to equities as well. So many people are caught off guard and still kind of living in that old environment where the money just kind of flows into those the exciting names, the fang names the tech stocks etc and you're still getting that to a degree although that is wearing off just a bit so what what i see here is a confluence of factors that has that that things are changing in a major way but the average person and thus the market is having a difficult time kind of pinning down what that new environment really looks like so um, so that's 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 kind of my take. But uh, we're going to swing back to the Invest Talk Voice Bank for a question that came in earlier on the eight 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 nine 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 chart. Hi, Justin or Steve. This is Tommy from Nashville. Love your program. I really wanted to ask. My employer recently started offering a a Roth four hundred one k, and they've always offered a traditional four hundred one k, which I've been contributing to. My question is: Should I start to transfer my funds into my Roth four hundred one k, or should I leave it in my traditional? I still do have a Roth IRA that I've been contributing to and maxing out every year. So any advice that you guys would have in this, I would be grateful for. Thank you so much. Love your program. You guys have a great day. Well, any funds that you move into that Roth 401k is going to be taxed to you in that year. And that's the main issue that you have to deal with. So maybe you do some. Maybe do all. That's more of a question for your accountant to see how much tax that you want to take in that particular year. And if you're in a high tax bracket, you probably don't want to do that. You don't want to lock in that tax rate in that in that year. 
Uh, you might want to do that at a later date when you're not earning much income, maybe right after retirement, before you hit RMDs. That's typically a time most people do Roth conversions. Um, so something to look at, but probably not based on your age. It didn't sound like you were close to retirement. So I, I probably wouldn't do that. But maybe you start new contributions in that Roth 401k as well. That's something uh, that you may be thinking about and create that div- that diversity. You said you already have the Roth IRA. You know, you, you and you have a traditional 401k, you have some diversity there, but maybe try to find a balance there where you can get those roughly the same size. And then once you do hit retirement, you have the ability to kind of plan for which accounts you take money out of based on your tax rate, et cetera. So uh, anything to add there, Luke? No, I think that pretty much covers it. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to head to a break right now. Thanks for tuning in on the next Invest Talk. We'll look into the story behind this question. Are target date funds good investments? Some analysts are making the case that target date funds have been nothing short of the biggest positive, positive development for investors since the index fund. That story tomorrow. But for now, I'm Justin Klein. I'm ready to take your questions now at 888-99-CHART. Let's say you've been thinking about learning a new language. Okay, why? I mean, how would it come in handy? And where would you want to use it? Could it be that you have an upcoming international trip? Or maybe you want to connect with family members or friends from a different culture? I think you should know about Rosetta Stone. With millions of users, it's been the world's most trusted language learning program for 30 years. Rosetta Stone is available on your desktop or as an app with audio companion and the ability to download lessons offline. Rosetta Stone truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It has a built-in patented speech recognition engine called True Accent. So as you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you pronounce words. With Rosetta Stone, you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. It's an intuitive process designed for long-term retention. You really learn to speak, listen, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone is an amazing value, so your special skill set is within easy reach. You know you want to do this, so don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Invest Talk listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off now at rosettastone.com slash today. Everybody wants a secure financial future, but getting there takes strategy, discipline, and the right information. That means you'll have finance and investment questions. Justin Klein is ready to provide his unbiased answers. So don't forget to call InvestTalk, 888-99-CHART. Hey, Justin, Steve, or maybe even Luke. This is Nick from Seattle, and I'm calling about McDonald's. This stock is an absolute falling knife right now, but it's starting, it's starting to get really interesting. I know that 
restaurant leisure and travel are out of, is an out of favor sector right now, but this stock seems to be getting somewhat cheap to me, especially based on historical levels. They're supposed to grow revenue next year. They're buying back stock. Their margins are increasing. So I don't know what am I missing here? How come how come this thing is is completely falling out of bed? I'm seeing that major resistance comes in around 240. And if it trades sideways around there, I may add McDonald's to my portfolio. Just calling to get your opinion. What's your thoughts on the sector and what's your thoughts on this individual stock? Thanks, guys. I'll be looking forward to hearing your answers on the show. All right. Looking at McDonald's and McDonald's certainly is in a free fall. And part of it has to be that here in California, uh, they made the minimum wage for all fast food workers twenty dollars an hour. Isn't that correct, Luke? They did. Yes. Yes. So certainly that's going to hurt McDonald's itself. And this was trading also at a pretty high multiple uh, compared to its uh, its history. And when interest rates go up, multiples kind of contract. You also saw consumer staples. Uh, and their type of companies really take it on the chin as well. So, you know, McDonald's is your kind of typical income type of investment because their business is so steady. Uh, and that has, and higher interest rates have hurt them as well. Went from 300 just le- just during the summer. Now we're at 250. So it doesn't sound like a, a big drop, but for McDonald's, that's a pretty volatile uh, move. Uh, Luke, do you think that it's cheap enough yet after this about 17% drop? You know, McDonald's is an interesting company, right? Because the way the business model actually operates is I still believe it's the largest real estate company in the world, right? So mm-hmm. they fran- they buy the pr- they purchase the land underneath the restaurants, they franchise out the brand, and they control the brand by owning the land itself. So if you look at its price to earnings, it is coming in below its five-year average of 29 uh, its price to cash flow is also below those averages. I'm not sure if this is the exact point you'd want to buy it, given what's going on again with the uncertainty of legislation and and, and uh, risks associated with that in California. But it does seem to be, compared to its historical valuations, near that point. Okay. So it's kind of reverted to the mean. And it is near some support. I will say that if you look at the weekly chart, this is where it kind of broke uh, broke out from uh, back in late 2022. So, you know, it's still in a longer term uptrend. You know, my worry is secularly just how many, how, how much more pressure will they get from the cost side? Uh, we know food prices are going up and now you have labor going up as well. And that will that structurally change their their business model overall. Uh, now, like you said, Luke, that a lot of that's real estate, but Commercial real estate prices are coming down. Now, they typically own actually some of the most attractive types of real estate, which are those small, single-tenant uh, retail locations that are in in high-traffic areas. They're not office real estate, so that's yeah. kind of a positive. Um, overall, I would say it's just not cheap enough quite yet, and I don't like the recent trend. This is a pretty, pretty large pullback on volume. And to me, unless this can reassert itself and, and start an uptrend again, I would not own it quite yet. All right. Thanks for the call. 
888-99 chart, 888-992-4278 is how you get through and ask your question on today's show. Now, my perspective today looks in the history of labor strikes, labor strikes, as we are seeing ongoing uh, labor negotiations in many industries. And a strike is simply an organized work stoppage conducted by laborers in order to impose bargaining power against its employees. And strikes are usually cumulative grievances, right? Where it's not just one thing that's been a problem, it's multiple aspects of their jobs that have compound, compounded over time that creates a, a level of strife within the workforce that precipitates a, a strike. And it can be set off by, usually it's set off by wage increases that don't keep up with inflation, which you can see that now, Luke, in, in the way you look at uh, wage growth. Early in the pandemic, the lower rungs of society and their jobs, they were actually keeping up in many, in many instances outpacing inflation. But as of late, that hasn't been the case. And so it's causing uh, these workers to stand up and, and strike. Yeah, you know, I think it actually goes back a lot further than that. I think one of the things that has caused this, what I've what I've dubbed to you uh, in the office as the the season of of the unions, if you mm-hmm. will, and certainly not one that'll last months, but probably last some time, is that in the wake of the recovery from two thousand eight, which was a long expansion, it was disproportionately pushed away from the same type of workers that are striking today. And so when they're seeing record profits at auto companies and they're seeing record profits at some of these businesses and they're not sharing in a way that they think they should be, uh, of course, that's going to cause them to want to organize in a way that uh, you haven't really seen since the early 1900s. And the most interesting part about that to me is just the support they have. 72% of Americans now uh, sympathize with the television writers. Overall, 67% sympathize uh, with unions in general, which is a pretty large majority. Yeah, and... This also jives with what I've been saying for a while, which is the demographic shifts in the country and, and really worldwide are going to shape the next decade, probably probably a few decades, uh, until the, those demographics shift back the other way. And what I'm saying is the boomers, the majority of baby boomers are retiring or have retired, excuse me, uh, which is, and there's not enough of the younger generation uh, both millennials and Gen Z to kind of fill that void. And therefore they have, these workers have a lot more bargaining power than they have in the past when the boomers were a large part of, of the workforce. And, you know, with deglobalization, that's another aspect where more and more people are trying to, or more and more companies are trying to solidify their supply chains and bring those back either through uh, sheer will or through the, the carrot approach from government, and that's uh, if you talk about the the Chips Act and the Inflation Reduction Act, obviously there's a lot of carrots there for that to happen as well. So you have a lot of confounding factors that are pushing the the, the strikes, and I don't think they're going to end anytime soon. Now, currently, 25,000 union members at five assembly plants and 38 parts distribution centers nationwide are on strike. Now, if you look back in history, Luke, the, the first major strike happened in 1886, and this was the Great South, Southwest Railroad Strike. This was in Arkansas, Illinois, Kansas, Missouri, and Texas. And uh, like I said, there's about 200,000 workers. In 1902, you had 147,000 workers. The Great Anthracite Coal anthracite. Strike. 
anthracite. There you go, anthracite coal strike started in, started when 147,000 coal miners were a part of the U- United Mine Workers of America uh, strike in eastern Pennsylvania. And then you fast forward all the way to 1922, you had 350,000 workers on strike. And this is when the National Guard actually came in. This is the railroad shop worker strike of 1922. And they tried to cut their wages by seven cents. And the National Guard came in and there were, there there was a lot of violence and it ended with them only getting a five cent cut. So uh, it was really over two cents an hour. And then you fast forward to, some of the bigger strikes, the steel strike of 1959, 500,000 workers. Think about that compared to just 25,000 now. This is a very small strike uh, in yeah. history. Now, now today we have 75,000 healthcare workers that walked off the job last week at Kaiser Permanente here in California, the nation's largest nonprofit healthcare organization. And altogether, there have been 312 strikes involving roughly 453,000 workers so far this year compared to only 180 strikes and 43,700 workers over the same period two years ago. So think about nearly a 10, oh, sorry, more than a tenfold increase in the number of workers that have walked off the job over the last two years. And what happened over the last two years? Inflation went up big. So to me, there's a clear correlation here with inflation and people not feeling like uh, their employers are keeping them up with that inflation. Yeah, and I think one thing that's going to exacerbate this is probably the success of the writers and presumably the success of the of the actors shortly after that. Yeah, exactly. So it's pretty clear that they are earning concessions. It's just a matter of, it's going to vary depending on the industry, but it's a matter of how long they're able to hold out. And, you know, I, I think also how profitable is the industry? Is there room for these hikes or or not? Um, and so, you know, you're starting to see that uh, corporate profit margins remain near record highs. They've come down from their peak uh, a couple of years ago, but they've but they still remain near record highs and well above longer term averages. And so, you know, uh, I think there is a lot of room for many industries to uh, pay their workers better, and that ultimately means higher inflation. That's going to be passed on to the end consumer. All right. Now let's touch a bit on the dollar and de-dollarization has been a popular term. And the big question is, are, is the rest of the world, are they getting very far? Now the percentage of official foreign exchange reserves allocated to us dollars globally was 58.9% in the second quarter. Now that's broadly unchanged from a 25 year low first first reach in the fourth quarter of 2020. So the trend over the last 20, call it five years, has been down. In the late 90s, we were hovering in the low 70s of foreign exchange reserves held in dollars. Now we're in the high 50s, right around the 60% range. So, Luke, based on the numbers, are is the rest of the world actually doing a good job of weaning themselves off dollars? Uh, well, you know, I think you have to put this into the backdrop of what's going on, right? So over the past 25 years, you've had the rise of the euro. You've had the rise of the Chinese yuan or the renminbi uh, trying to displace the dollar. And when you take a look at the trend over the past 25 years, if anything, I think it's slower than those countries that are trying to de-dollarize the global economy would like. Well, it's slower because... 
if you look at the amount of debt that's issued and the type of currency that it is denominated in, it's still, but 70 plus percent of debt that's issued is denominated in dollars, which tells me that, hey, if you're going to lend money, currency of any kind, you're going to get paid back in any type of currency. Which currency do you have the most faith in over the coming years? Because it's not about today, right? You're, you're lending money. You're getting money back in the future. What dollar are those or what currency are those banks, institutions that are lending that money out? What are they wanting to be paid back in? And it's still widely dollars. And remember, those loans are now assets to whoever lent it. And so if you look at total dollar denominated assets, it's largely unchanged. But when you're looking at trade flows, trade flows in certain current in certain aspects like oil, for example, that is being increasingly de-dollarized and uh, it, it is being transacted in other currencies. So China and Russia, for example, they're mainly trading in euros as well as yuan. And so it's, it's, it is happening, but it's a lot slower than most people want to really admit because I think most foreign countries, foreign institutions, they don't want to be beholden to the dollar, but really they are. Yeah, I think you also have to look at some of the reasons why these countries have been dropping U.S. treasuries over the past year. Is it related to their plan to de-dollarize the global economy or is it really related to just generally wanting to exit the government bond market given the mass amount of issuances at higher interest rates compared to historical bonds yeah a lot of people will quote the amount of bonds that china is holding but a lot of the recent drop is simply bond prices going down so just showing the current value of those bonds on their balance sheet and then they've also been buying things like mortgage-backed securities as opposed mm-hmm. to simply treasuries. And they've also been huge increases. Excuse me. You've seen huge increases in holdings in places like Belgium and Luxembourg. And a lot of people, you don't, you don't know this, but a lot of people surmise that that is actually where China is buying those, new, those issues uh, of treasuries. So are they really diversifying? It really doesn't look like it. Remember, the, China benefits from this relationship. For the past 25, 30 years, it's all been about the U.S. running a trade deficit and China running a trade surplus. They're taking that surplus and reinvesting it in U.S. treasuries, allowing us to run a continuous deficit and thus strong economy that will buy more Chinese goods. So it's been kind of this virtuous cycle that I don't know if China wants to break that because what do they have else? What is their alternative to this system is the big question. Yeah, I think I think one of the reasons why people want to break the system is something that we've talked about before and something that I've talked about before, which is the soft power of the U.S. government, right? Rather than using hard military power, they come in with economic sanctions and th- that grip and the ability of them to do that is based upon how important the dollar is to global trade. Mm-hmm. But the countries that would most like to see that power taken away are also not the countries with a large share of global trade. Look at where the Russian economy has gone over the past 20 years. Look at Iran, all these countries that want to de-dollarize. They're not as incentivized to, or rather China is more incentivized to keep the dollar 
because they aren't really the subject of the type of crippling sanctions that these countries that don't have that large share do. Yeah, they're not benefiting from the current system and they would love it to change. All right, now listen, Best Talk, I'm Justin Klein. We have one goal here each and every weekday, and that's to help you achieve your own version of financial freedom. And our work continues after this final break. So get your questions in now at 888-99-CHART. One of the most rewarding things I do each weekday is host the Invest Talk podcast. I truly enjoy helping investors. And I know that every question counts and every answer I provide will be unbiased. You, the caller, get to chart the course for each Invest Talk podcast. Call with your questions anytime, day or night, 888 99Chart. Hey, this is James from Georgia. Really love the show. This call is for Steve or Justin or Luke. And I was trying to call you guys about Verizon. I've got Verizon in both of my portfolios, it's down almost 23%. One of these stocks that I was hoping to just hold forever. And um, I'm curious, is this something I just need to be patient with, keep holding it? Do you think I should exit it? I greatly appreciate your advice, and I look forward to your answer on the show. Thank you. All right, looking at Verizon, I don't think I need to tell everybody what Verizon does, but we know Verizon is a part of a, what do you call it? Where there's three main players in an industry, Luke, not a duopoly, but triopoly. Triopoly. There we go. I can say triopoly. There we go. Um, And they have a lot of debt. That's the simple issue here. And they're in a very competitive business that T-Mobile has been trying to take market share and has been able to take market share. And it yields 8.5% which everyone's going to look look at and say, oh, that looks amazing. But, you know, are they able to continue to pay that with this level of debt load? And this is the perfect example of the type of name that you want to try to avoid in this market. Uh, I'm a huge, I, I came to this conclusion a couple weeks ago, and it's pretty clear that most investors, especially those that are focused on income, are way off sides when it comes to the type of, names are looking at they're looking at the dividend yield and they're saying oh i want that dividend i want seven eight nine percent whatever right but they're not looking at the structural forces that are uh making these type of companies with a lot of debt uh, a lot lot less profitable uh and uh structurally structurally weak um and so this is the perfect long duration asset that i think is going to continue to struggle now near term I think we might be at a point where you get a bounce in these type of names. You might get uh, treasury yields to, to fall and, and you get a little bit of a rally here. But these are the names that you don't want to own longer term because of the higher interest rate environment. What say you, Luke? <laughs> I like the way you phrase that. You should do that more. But yeah. I think from an industry perspective, the problem is that the future is 5G and Verizon slipped into third behind T-Mobile and AT&T in terms of coverage. And because mm-hmm. of that, they're losing a lot of customers. And that's not good to shed customers when you have high ex- fixed costs to operate because you have a lot of debt. That's what's going mm-hmm. on with Verizon. From yep. a general perspective- And to catch I, up, it's going to cost them a lot of money. It's going to cost them a lot more money, which means more debt mm-hmm. and or more shares. But I think from a larger general overview of investing, too often people tend to stay married to their losses and divorce their winners. Mm-hmm. And this seems to be a situation where it may be that you're too married to your losses. 
Yeah, I agree. Uh, but like I said, is this the time to sell it? You know, uh, this would probably be for a trade. It's probably good stock for a trade if treasury rates fall because you're going to get some some nice tailwinds uh, because that's one thing that's been weighing on this name as of late. So if you get the opposite happening, right, bond, rally in bonds, uh, sell off in yields, then that's certainly going to help a name like Verizon. So uh, timing-wise, I probably wouldn't sell it, but definitely not a name I want to be holding longer. Correct. All right. Let's touch a bit on this subscription model. And, you know, there's a lot to be said about behavioral economics, but there have, been, there have also been many studies recently on how easy it is for these subscription companies, base companies, to get people to sign up and keep their memberships going, even though they may not even use their their memberships in any way and that obviously happens a lot in the streaming uh, world the original place that happened was with gyms most people sign up for gyms they're very optimi- optimistic on how much they're going to use them and they use them a lot lot less than they typically do i know luke you're a serial subscription canceller and re-subscriber so you know what does this say about the subscription model overall and the businesses that run them Yeah, I think there's two lessons to be had here. One is a personal finance lesson, and that's be careful where you're spending your money. I just found out the other day that I'd been paying for an AMC Plus and Cinemax subscription through Amazon Prime because they didn't notify me they were charging me, even though I did a free trial, which I guess I just forgot to cancel. Luckily, I was putting all my expenses onto a new credit card to get those welcome bonus points, always a good thing to do. And uh, I learned that, so be careful where you're spending your money. From a business perspective, I would say, it also tells me that there's a lag between when people want to cancel and when businesses are going to recognize the losses in revenue. So be careful with these streaming services. The bottom might not be here. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of the multiples, at least, that these streaming services are trading at. All right. I'm Justin Klein with Luke Guerrero. Let's complete another Invest Talk program. Steve and I thank you for listening. We encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads, which you can find anytime at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. And be sure to like and subscribe to our our channel. All right. Independent thinking should success. This Invest Talk. Good night. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461. Steve Peasley is president and Justin Klein is chief executive officer of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial. Thank you for listening and your comments and questions are welcome on our 24-hour listener line at 888-99-CHART. Thank you.